children, you may be dismissed, those of you who are leaving. And next time we do that song, if there shall be a next time for that song and you feel like two-stepping, David danced before the ark, so just come right on up. We will not tell you to sit down as long as you do it right. Then I can't come up here because I'm not a very good two-stepper. I'm a (laughs) toe-stepper. Anyway, that was funny. Well, for two weeks, Brian Kaiser has served us well. He's talking about the good and the bad, and today he's talking about the ugly, the righteous, the unrighteous, and today he's going to teach us about the self-righteous. Brian, come on up and serve us again. You know, it's time for me to leave when uh, I have to use moisturizer because my skin is so dry. You know that it's time for me to leave when I'm standing here in a short-sleeved shirt and my hands are icicles. You know that it's time for me to leave when I preach a sermon on self-righteousness. Because a sermon on self-righteousness is really tough for the people who congregate in God's name. And today we're going to be talking about self-righteousness. And so i got to get out of Dodge while I still can, uh, but I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to uh, serve among you. You have real special fellowship, and I pray that God's blessing will be upon you in the coming weeks, in the coming months, in the coming years, as you grow closer to one another and closer to him. Uh, let me just open with a, with a word of prayer. Father, open my mouth that I might bring forth your praise. Amen. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The righteous, the unrighteous, and the self-righteous. We have talked now for three weeks about this concept of righteousness and how important it is for us to grasp that concept. It is the basis for the book of Proverbs, for the book of, Sol- for the book of Psalms. It is the, the basis for Paul's primary gospel presentation, the book of Romans. And it is also the basis for the teaching of Christ. And we're going to see that today. The righteous, or righteousness, how have we defined that? It is acting according to... The divine law. And we saw that acting according to the divine law, both you attain righteousness and maintain it primarily by what? Faith. You must have faith. And it is not just an intellectual assent that you have, but it is something that affects your very actions, affects your very walk in life. That's why it's not just to attain righteousness but to maintain righteousness as well. So faith is primary in this whole discussion. We have to have faith. But that faith has to be rooted in truth. Unrighteousness, we defined as acting contrary to the divine or moral law. And we saw, we we looked at very very intensely last week, that when the unrighteous, your, your very family members, the very, very people that you interact with, your friends, your co-workers, as they are living unrighteous lives, they are under a delusion that, allow, that does not allow them to see the correlation between their actions and the path of destruction that they are headed down. And so as they are living these unrighteous lives, God is handing them over to do the very things that Satan wants to lie to them about. That the world system is telling them they should pursue and that their very flesh inside of them wants to achieve. And so we talked about the three Mike Tysons and how deadly and destructive they are. How they just want to pummel you and leave you on the side of the road, wasted. A spiritual life not gained. A spiritual life that is just sidelined. You have no impact for the kingdom of God if this is what you pursue. And unfortunately, you will wake up one day 
whether it's weeks, months, or years down the road, your life will be in disaster. It will be chaotic. And it is then that God gives the unrighteous an out. For by grace are you saved through faith, that while you are dead in your transgressions and sins, you might, as Peter, while he was sinking in the ocean, you might have that opportunity to say, Lord, save me. This is the beauty of the gospel. Today, though, we're going to look at something far worse, far worse than unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is scary, but self-righteousness is really tough. We're going to define self-righteousness as this. Self-righteousness or man's righteousness is viewing oneself as innocent in relation to the divine law when in fact you stand guilty. Now, that's pretty tough, right? You, uh, you see yourself as one thing when the reality is completely different. You see yourself as one thing when the reality is completely different. Wow, oh, this is tragic. How many times it, it, that we look at in life that we end up in error or end up in just difficult situations because we didn't see ourselves as we really were. Well, we're going to look at that today. I got kind of a convoluted statement here for you. Ready for this? Self-righteousness is the result of faulty application, of faulty interpretation, of faulty motivation, of faulty perception. I'll try my best. That's my best Jesse Jackson that I can give you right there. Okay? I mean, I'm trying to get some kind of rhyme in there going, but that's the best I can do right there. It's a little convoluted, but we're going to look at that today, what that means. And we're going to look primarily at a passage in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Why don't you flip to Matthew 23, and we're going to see this played out. Faulty application of faulty interpretation of faulty motivation of faulty perception. We're going to work that backwards now. The faulty perception, what is that? Well, you believe you are something you are not. You believe you are something you are not. Let's look at Matthew chapter 23 here. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the experts in the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, pay attention to what they tell you and do it, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads hard to carry and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing even to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by people, for they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and elaborate greetings in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a group of people, the, the Pharisees, as you read through scripture, you might have a very negative perception of who the Pharisees are. And that's pretty good. But unfortunately, in that negative perception, you don't really know who they are. They're the people who congregate in God's name. They're the people who study this book. They're the people who want to get together with one another. They're the Pharisees and the experts in the law. These are the people who knew this book 
They were interested in this book. These people today are us. The people who congregate in God's name. The people who are interested in this book. The people who want to live by this book. You see, these Pharisees, these would be great neighbors to have. If we're talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly, the righteous, the unrighteous, and the self-righteous, and I had to choose between living next to an unrighteous person and a self-righteous person, I'd want to live next to a self-righteous person. They were good people. They tithed 10%. These people, they they had an appearance of, of going after this book. And so if you wanted to be neighbors with people, this is that group. And as we read through scripture, sometimes I don't think we understand that. That these people actually had good intentions. They had good intentions. But unfortunately, they didn't see themselves as they really are. They believed something that they were not. See where it said there in that first part. They believed that they were the people who followed Moses. That they sat on his seat. That they were the ones who were able to take this book, interpret it correctly, and say, follow after me. I've got it all figured out. This is who they were. They were using terms like teacher and father and rabbi in ways that were not intended. In ways that were saying, I'm different than you. I'm better than you. You need to honor and respect me because I have this book. And I know the path of righteousness, so follow after me. You see, Jesus isn't saying don't use father and don't use teacher. We don't have to get hyper-literal with that passage. He's saying don't use it as they are using it. Because they're trying to distinguish themselves. They're trying to elevate themselves above you. This happens in the church today. This is what Judd and myself and other pastors would be very cautious about not perpetuating. You see, we don't want you to think that there's a difference between the pastors and the laity. Laity, real fancy word for the rest of the church members. Now, what are the illustrations and metaphors that Paul uses for the body of Christ? Well, that's it, the body of Christ. That there are all parts, we are all part of a body. That we all have use, that we all have a function. That there is no one part that is better than another. But the body only operates well if we are all doing our part. You see, I say this in my teaching and in my preaching often. My Christianity will not be good enough until you are doing your part in the body. My Christianity, my experience with Christ is lacking unless you are doing your part in the body of Christ. Do you believe that? Or do you, are you looking up and going, oh, he's a pastor, he's got it all put together, he, he, he's living a great life. No, I don't believe that. I desperately need you to be living out your Christianity well. Just as all of you need all of us to be doing the same. We are a body in Christ. So we have to see ourselves as we are. Pharisees did not see this. The Pharisees did not see this. They thought they were different. They thought they were people who were special. Who were distinguished because of their understanding of this book. And unfortunately... When they believe that, when you believe something, your next thing that you do is you have a faulty motivation because you, want, you are motivated to defend that belief. Not only do you believe something wrong about yourself, but you do not have the humility to ask this question, could I be wrong? No, that, we, are ne- we never ask that question, do we? We always go, I know and I am confident in my belief about who I am. Therefore, I will put a stake in the ground and I will defend it to the death. Anybody attacks me, I will come 
and I will defend my belief. As you are interacting with yourself and with others, this should be a red flag for you. This should be something, a warning bell for you if you find yourself defensive or you find others defensive about who they are. Because of wrong belief, they're motivated to defend in a wrong way that belief. I think about me, right? I mean, this is tough. I'm out on the basketball court and I like to play basketball and there's going to be, you know, people fouling and, you know, whatnot. And, you know, different rules at different courts and, you know, I'm playing aggressive and I get a guy and he's like, foul. What's the instant thing that I think? Wrong perception about myself. I'm a great basketball player. There's no possible way. I'm an amazing defender. There's no possible way that I fouled you. Wrong perception about myself leads me to do what? Be defensive about something, right? To defend it in a wrong way. How's this working in your life? What are the areas in your life that you're looking at and going, I may not see myself as I really am. I might be really defensive about something. You know, what's going to be difficult is for you to answer that question right now. Do you know how you answer that question? You live in community with other believers. You live in community with one another because it is in community that we are able to see ourselves as we really are. Because in community, when we care about each other, when we love one another, we are able to point these things out to one another. Right? We're able to say, hey, in a loving way, you may want to think about this. In community, as you go into these small groups, be very aware of one thing. You need to have a prerequisite to go into these small, small groups, and that is humility. You must have humility to go into a small group. You must be able to be willing to say, I'm getting into this environment because I want to see myself as I really am. Because I don't want to end up like these guys. So I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to ask the question every once in a while to your spouse or to your small group or to a community that you know is going to be safe. Right? I'm not, now that puts a lot of responsibility on the community, right? To interact well. That we don't just hop on it and say, oh, well, I'm in community, so here's what you need to work on. Oh, oh, I've got the right to do that because I'm in community. So here you go. I want to give you this, 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 and this. Now, what does Jesus say? Before you can take the speck out of someone else's eye, you first must remove the beam in your own eye. Must have humility. Okay? This is clearly not what is happening here. As you go through that passage, you see that not only do they have a faulty perception of themselves, not only do they have a faulty motivation, but that they are faulty interpreting the scriptures. Have you ever seen anybody misinterpret scripture for their own gain, to defend their own belief, to defend their own perception of who they are? Yeah, this happens all the time, right? We go to scripture with a wrong perception of who we are, trying to defend that wrong perception, and we say, what better way to defend my wrong perception of myself than if I use this book? Because this book is the truth, the word of God, and if I have this on my side, then certainly I will be defended appropriately. This is a major problem. This is how most denominations have begun. Now, what was your thought when I said denomination? Did you sit back and go, oh, we're not a denomination. This is why we're not a denomination. We're just a Bible church. This is why they're wrong. Was that your thought? Boy, I hope not. Because you'd be sitting in the self-righteous seat. See, this is the danger, right? 
there's reasons why denominations exist, good reasons. But there's also a lot of bad reasons for denominations and why they exist. If there's a church or denominations that's sitting out there going, we're right, we have found the way, the truth, and the life, and all of the rest of the 30,000 denominations are wrong, but we're right, and we're going to defend that perception of ourselves based on an interpretation of Scripture, Woe is that church. That's what we're about to arrive at here. Seven woes of the self-righteous. Be very careful with interpretation when it is motivated by a perception that you have of yourself. Right? We call that in seminary, big word here, eisegesis. Reading into scripture something so that you can defend yourself. Trying to proof text this book, right? Trying to come in here and go, no, here's why I'm right, and finding these books and ripping them out of the context and saying, here's why I'm right. I don't care if you're Arminian, Calvinist, if you're pre-mill, ah-mill, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. I don't care about that stuff. I mean, I do. Have a position. Study scripture and see what it is. But then examine how you interact with that. Are you unable to fellowship with somebody that has a different opinion of you? Or a different thought than you on that? That should be a warning sign. That should be a red flag for you. That you might possibly be headed down this path of wrong perception, wrong motivation, wrong interpretation, And ultimately, wrong interpretation leads to wrong or faulty application. Not only have you believed something you're not, not only are you defending that belief and distorting scripture for that purpose, your actions may give you the appearance of spirituality. They may give you the appearance of spirituality. Well, that'll work really well when you get to heaven. Hmm? Well, why should I let you into heaven? Well, doesn't it look like I'm a Christian? I mean, I've tried my hardest to look like a Christian. I've tried my best to give the appearance of that in my life. Look at these Pharisees. What have they done? They wear these phylacteries. Do you know what that is? It's a distortion of Scripture. A hyper-literal interpretation of Scripture from Exodus and Deuteronomy that says you should wear the Word of God on your foreheads. That was figurative language used to really encourage the Israelites to say, you know what, be in the Word of God. This will bring life to you. And they distorted that and they said, oh, here's what I'll do. I'm going to get this little box and I'm going to stuff a little Scripture in it and I'm going to tie it around my forehead, right there. And I'm going to put it on my doorpost, so that when everybody comes to my house, they'll see that I've got the Word of God right there. Sound familiar? Any of you guys have, like, some kind of psalm or something like that at your house? That's not a bad thing, but it depends on your motivation. It depends on your interpretation. Are you simply trying to have the appearance of somebody who is righteous, or are you really pursuing righteousness? These Pharisees would put these things on, and you know what would happen? It became a competition. It became a competition to see who could wear the biggest phylactery. Can you imagine this, right? Walking down the street and seeing somebody with this huge box on their forehead? How ridiculous does this sound? Tassels. Tassels were a common thing in their, in their wardrobe. Jesus probably had tassels on his wardrobe. It was, you know, something, you would think of graduation, right? The tassels there. These would be on their robes. They'd be hanging down. It was kind of a reminder as they walked throughout the day that there was a word of God, that there was a holiness that was called for the people of God. It was to be a reminder for that, and yet the Pharisees took this to crazy lengths. They would get longer and longer tassels more uh, fancy tassels 
very gaudy tassels so that as they walked down the streets of Jerusalem and throughout Israel, people would know that certainly they were holy. This is who they were. They had an appearance of spirituality. But when they get to heaven, I'm afraid that's not going to work. But Father, you saw the length of my tassels. You certainly saw the phylacteries on my head. I remember growing up, boy, we had to to dress nice for church. The appearance of spirituality, is that in your dress? Or is that how you live your life? Is that just a little scripture that's laying outside your doorpost, your house, so that people can come up and trick or treat? Oh, we're not going to get anything at this house. They're the holy ones. They have an appearance of spirituality. Seven woes. Throughout the rest of this, we're not going to read them all, but I want to flip to two in particular. Verse 25. By the way, woe, that's really harsh language. Anybody that says to you, any uh, unbeliever that says to you Jesus was just about love, flip them on over to Matthew 23. Because Jesus says, woe, 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 woe to you, Pharisees and experts of the law. Woe is associated with judgment. Woe is a coming judgment is going to happen for you. Unless you radically change your life, woe is coming to you. Jesus was not just about love. He was about the truth of the gospel. And here he's saying to these Pharisees and experts of the law, woe to you. You have this great appearance of spirituality. But coming very quickly is a judgment That is going to leave you separated from God for all of eternity. Verse 25. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may become clean too. This is really tough. Blind Pharisee. What is that? You cannot see yourself as you really are. You are blind. You are a hypocrite. You have this book. You think that you are the teacher or the rabbi of this book, and yet you are doing the very things that this book would say, will separate you from God for all of eternity. Blind. Verse 29, Woe to you, experts in the law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have participated with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. By saying this, you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors. You snakes, you offspring of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Here is Jesus talking to a congregation who is assembling in the name of God. Talking to a congregation or a group of people who are concerned with this book. And he is saying, you are blind, you are vipers, you are offspring of evil. Where is your perception of yourself? What are you defending? How are you interpreting this book? And most importantly... How are you applying this book? Would Jesus be talking to you? Would he be talking to me? 
as he gives these seven woes. No, we have to do better than this. We are the assembly of God's people, created in the image of Christ to bring glory to his name. Well, how, how can this be done? If, if pride is all over here in not being able to see ourselves as we really are, right? And, and this is something that is common for all of us, to not really be able to see ourselves as we are. How can we possibly, possibly get right with God? If this is the people that are assembling in God's name here, and they're not doing it right, how can we, as we assemble in God's name, get it right? Well, we have to pursue humility. Pursue, the very word means that you have the motivation to overtake it. Pursue humility. What are the things that are you are doing in your life to pursue humility? For me, it, 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 it goes all throughout my life. If you know me at all, you know one thing. That is one arrogant son of a gun. I'm constantly joking about how great I... No, I'm just... I mean, you know. A lot of it's in joke. But yeah, this is really tough. I mean, I have to pursue humility on a daily basis. I have to take advantage of every opportunity when humility is something that I can grasp hold of. Because I know that if I can grasp hold of humility, maybe then I will see myself as I really am. Maybe then I won't be caught up into this self-righteous game of not seeing myself as I am, not defending that wrong perception, not misinterpreting scripture, and not misapplying it for my life. So when I'm out on the basketball court and I do foul somebody, and I don't think that I do, and tensions start to escalate, I have to stop and I have to say, what am I doing here? Am I going to pers- This is a great opportunity to pursue humility. For me to go up and say, you know what? As hard as this, I, I wouldn't say this in my out loud, but in my mind, this is what I'd be saying. As hard as this possibly is, because I still don't think that I did it. Right? Because I still have this wrong perception of myself. It's your ball. I gotcha. That's how badly I want to pursue humility. That I'm willing to be wronged. Willing to be wronged. You see, there's that great bracelet, WWJD. What would Jesus do? This is what Jesus would do. He would not pursue being right over the opportunity to humble himself. Think for a second about who he is. He is the word of God. Paul says about him in Colossians, by him and for him and through him, all things were made and all things are held together. Have you studied the galaxy or the universe? Do you know how huge this universe is? There was a scientist a couple years back that postulated that there are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on earth. Now, if you played golf with me, man, I've seen a lot of sand traps. And there's a lot of sand in those sand traps. There's a lot of grains of sand. And then I started thinking about, wow, the beaches in Hawaii, there's a lot of grains of sand on those beaches. And then I started to think about the deserts, the great deserts of the world. Wait a minute. There was enough information for a scientist to postulate that there were more grains of sand, or more stars in the universe than grains of sand on Earth. And wait a minute. If I understand correctly, stars have to be hundreds of thousands of light years apart from one another just to exist How huge is this universe that we live in? And this is what is said about the word of God who became flesh, our savior, Jesus Christ, by him and for him and through him. All things were made and all things are held together. And he came to earth in the form of a little baby He humbled himself. He left the glory that he had that was rightfully his, and he came to earth and was born in a manger. 
He came at a time in life when he, he wasn't a rock star. He wasn't a, a king. He wasn't anything. He was just a, a carpenter and a teacher. And here he is, the very word of God coming to earth, being able to communicate this perfectly, right? Because this is who he is, right? And so as he's interacting with the Pharisees and the experts in the law, and he's saying, they're asking him questions, he's able to perfectly answer every one of them because it is his very nature, this is who he is, the word of God. They were left dumbstruck at times unable to question him further because he perfectly answered them every time. And what did he do when it came to defending himself? Justice. When when they started to attack him and accuse him of wrongdoing, oh, he only did those miracles because a demon was inside of him. By the power of Satan, he's doing these things. Did he step aside and say, no, because of justice, I will tell you who I am. No, he walked humbly. And he said, even though you're way off, I'm going to allow you to persecute persecute me and attack me. I will even die for you, Pharisees, experts of the law. So WWJD, what would Jesus do if he's going to do that? If that is our pattern then we need to pursue humility. And that means something. There's substance to that statement. It means that you are willing to take on the persecutions of people who want to attack you. Basketball is a ridiculous illustration. There's some truth to it, but it's still ridiculous. Are you going to entrench yourself in a position, put a stake in the ground that says, I will die for being a premillennialist. I will die for being a pre-trib. Or are you going to have some humility and walk with one another and say, you know what? I might be wrong. Here's why I believe this, but I might be wrong. This is what Jesus did for us. This was his example for us. As you're interacting with the community and they're attacking you, or persecuting you. What does it say? Jesus says, turn the other cheek. We must really get this concept of doing the counterintuitive thing that we need to do. This is what we are called to do. Well, when confronted with the truth, the self-righteous will likely lash out. They will rarely respond with humility. This is what gives me great fear in standing in front of you. Because as I speak to a congregation who is interested in assembling because of God, who's interested in assembling because of this book, I realize that we all have this pride issue that we're dealing with. We all have this issue that says, you know what, I'm right. Here's why I'm right. And we will rarely respond with humility. Instead, we will lash out. Is this the history of Protestantism? That we will lash out? I'm glad I didn't live in the 1600s, late 1500s, as Protestants separated from the Roman Catholic Church and and for good reason. But they did so And they ended up in the same position that the Roman Catholic Church ended up in. They started dividing over even baptism. And there was a group called the Anabaptists. And they said, you know what, we want to, we don't even really believe in infant baptism. We kind of want to re-baptize to really, you know, see that your faith is personal. And when you have a personal faith, then, you know, we'll baptize you. That seems biblical. You know what the infant Baptists did? Tied them up, threw them in a river. They burned them at the stake. They lashed out and killed their brothers in Christ. Don't think that it's not possible 
Don't think that it's not possible for you to be sitting there and be blinded by who you are, by a wrong perception of who you are. We need to have humility. We have to have it. We have to pursue it in our lives. Well, there was a famous Pharisee who uh, pursued humility. But it wasn't before Jesus had to shake him up. You see, there was a person who had great zealousness for the word of God. But he was wrong. His name was Saul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's an expert in the law. And he stood there approving when Stephen made this great sermon to God's people, to the community. He stood there approving of the community, stoning Stephen to death. Here he was, a man who had a wrong belief in himself. A man who is motivated to defend that belief, even to the point of killing others. He was motivated because he had a wrong interpretation of scripture. And that wrong interpretation led him to apply it in the worst possible way. He lashed out. Because he did not pursue humility. And then one day on the road to Damascus, God woke him up. He was hit over the head with a two-by-four, the spiritual two-by-four, the appearance of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and his life was changed forever. In Philippians chapter 3, he writes this. You can turn there if you want. Philippians chapter 3, he says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again to you, is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. Exult in Christ Jesus and do not rely on human credentials, though mine too are significant. I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. From the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church according to the righteousness stipulated in the law. I was blameless. But these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liability compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung, as dung. That's crap. that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. My aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and to be like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. Here he is the great man, the great missionary of the church. His credentials are far greater than any of us could ever have. And what does he say? All these credentials, everything that I have, I consider it as crap, as dung. There's no use for it. In fact, it's even objectionable. My things that I have done, the, the, the credentials that I have, I consider them as objectionable to the far greater glory of knowing Jesus Christ. You see, when you attain righteousness and maintain that righteousness by faith, what you are doing is you are attaining it and maintaining it 
by faith in him, by faith in his work. Imagine this for a minute. You're standing in a courtroom, the father looking down at you, the, the uh, prosecuting attorney, Satan, accusing you over and over. Look at him. Look how bad he is. Look how wrong he is. And there's your defense attorney, Jesus. And he's saying, no, no. Actually, he has put his faith in everything that I have done. Do you know what, how the Father sees you? The Father sees you as Jesus when you have faith in him. Who would you rather have the Father see you as? You? Boy, I hope not. That's the, the Pharisees. That's the people who have an, a, a wrong perception of, of themselves. That they're that confident that they would go before the Father and say, look at me. Look at the credentials that I have. Here's what I have done. Certainly my appearance has that spiritual tone to it, that spiritual ring to it that gives me right standing with you. That's crazy. No, stand before the Father on the basis of the work Christ has done. That's how God sees you if you have faith in his Son. There is no greater thing in Scripture, there's no greater miracle that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that God now sees you as his Son, Jesus. Now, this is how we need to live our life. If God sees you as Jesus, then live as Jesus. You see, it's kind of corny, right? WWJD. Our, our, our society has almost made a mockery of that. But actually, there's a lot of truth to it. If God sees me as Jesus, then why would I want to live any other way? I want the world to see the righteousness of Christ lived out in me. Righteousness. Acting according to the divine law. In the New Testament, it is acting according to the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have both this relationship, this vertical relationship, this personal relationship with God that is played out, how? With mankind, horizontally. If you call yourself a Christian, if you want to walk in the righteousness of Christ, you have to be involved with his people. There is no, I have this and I'm good. No, you must live that life out with his people. It's the law of Christ. And so as you attain righteousness by faith in Christ, you also maintain it by living it out. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? There's only one possible way that you can do it. Humbly. Pursuing humility. Because when you love someone else as yourself, you put their needs, their interests ahead of your own. I'm a Dallas Seminary grad. I grew up in a Christian family. I came to faith at the age of four. Uh, when I went to public school, uh, I, I was a, a man who would speak up against evolution. My classmates knew that I was a Christian. I've been a pastor. I've taken a youth group from freshman year through to their senior year, graduated them. I have some credentials, and do you know what I consider about those credentials? That they are completely objectionable to the far greater worth and value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. Those things are but dung. I want to know him and the power of the resurrection. And I'm afraid that sometimes I look at those credentials and think, Woohoo! I got it made. May it never be. Woe to me if I ever depend on any of those things. Father, 
you are a good God. You are a miracle-working God. You love your people. Pour out your grace on this body. Your grace is given to those who walk humbly before you. May you create in them a desire to pursue humility all the days of their lives. To never regard their credentials as something of value, but to lay them aside. To put on Christ. Father, uh, we are to pursue righteousness. And there is benefit for pursuing righteousness in life. I pray now that after these three weeks, we'll be able to add that to our understanding of how we understand life and we experience life. That there are benefits for pursuing righteousness. But it comes primarily, the priority of faith in your son is there all throughout. As we first attain it, And then we maintain it. Help us not to just claim that for our eternal security, but help us to claim that for how we live our life. Father, I know each day I need to come to you with a heart that says I can't do it on my own. With a heart that says I need you desperately today to live this out. We praise you. We praise your your son's name. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, who has patterned this for us, modeled it well for us. May we bring a greater glory to your name as we put him on in our lives. We ask all these things in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.